Hey, my name is Heath. And I'm John. And this is the Film Grad Review. Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Film Grad Review. Today we're going to be talking about the new Netflix series Maniac, starring Jonah Hill and Emma Stone. We're also going to be talking about uh, Ben Mendelsohn film Land of Steady Habits. It's on Netflix right now as well. But before we get into that, I went to the cinema over the weekend and I saw A House with a Clock in Its Walls and White Boy Rick. I'm going to talk about that first. House with a Clock in Its Walls, directed by Eli Roth, who you might remember from Inglorious Bastards. He was Donnie the Bear Jew Donowitz. Sergeant Donnie Donowitz, the Bear Jew. He directed this adaptation. Currently sits at 67% on Rotten Tomatoes, a 6.3 out of 10 on IMDb, and an 85% on Google. Which is pretty much middle of the road for yeah, Google. Yeah, yeah. House of the Clock in Its Walls, I have never read this book. Uh, it is a children's book, but I... F- yeah, it was written in the 70s, yeah. which surprised me. I think I remember seeing the cover, though, because when I looked it up, I was like, that cover looks so familiar. But uh, it was entertaining. It's a kid's movie through and through, even though there's a little bit of, um, I guess you would call it terror in it. But yeah, it was it was a kid's movie. Stars Jack Black and Kate Blanchett, and they have amazing chemistry as a duo. They play off of each other very, very well. And in the in the story, they have a platonic relationship, right? They're essentially just friends. Completely. Yeah, there was no love story. There was no have to save the damsel in distress. Kate Blanchett is uh, she's a witch, and Jack Black is a is a warlock or a boy witch, as they say. Boy witch. <laughs> yeah. In the beginning. Kate Blanchett's character is a little stifled in her magic. She, for some reason, doesn't perform magic anymore. She can't get her spells to work properly. And they go into that towards the end. They don't play it off as anybody having to save her or or what have you. Now, what about the actual clock? Well, I can't tell you that. (laughs) It's just, uh, they don't know what it does. They can't even find it. They just know that it's in the wall somewhere. It was put there by Kyle MacLachlan, who plays another warlock. He was Jack Black's mentor, and he's been dead for about a year at the start of the film. Which is so weird to see Kyle MacLachlan in a kid's movie, although he was in the Flintstones movie too, so... Well, it's all kind of weird because, as you mentioned at the top, Eli Roth directed this, and not only yeah. is he the Bear Jew, but he brought into the world, for better or worse, the Hostel series, the sort of body horror, torture porn yeah. genre of horror films. And I read, and I didn't know this, that he actually started by doing animated shorts or kids' stuff. So it's it's within his toolbox but it's just not something he's known for at all at this point yeah and i think that he if that's the case makes a good return to form it was a well done movie and it just proves that kids movies don't have to be schlock like they can be good films as long as they're constructed well and they have a talented cast to carry it 
I mean, I saw a kid's movie that uh, a friend of mine had invested in that had Ben Kingsley as the lead and Mercedes Rule was in it, and it was terrible. And these are talented people. Well, the, the only criticism I really read that was prevalent through the reviews, and maybe you can speak to it, was that, and having not read the book, it's hard to say, but the reviews seem to indicate that any elements of horror were really kind of muted, and it was turned into sort of a CGI fest with lots of lowbrow comedy. I think I read about what there's a yeah a griffin topiary yeah. that farts leaves or something. Yeah, and I'm not a toilet humor person, as anyone who knows me knows that. And that scene, I just was, I was lost. I'm like, that's not funny to me. It doesn't add anything. So yeah, that that was disappointing, and the pumpkin scenes, as you can see in the trailer, are definite CG, and I think that the film would have gained a lot if they had used some practical effects, but again, it is a kid's movie, so you don't want to scare... And kids are a yeah, lot more forgiving. and you don't want to scare them too much, so... Or do you? I mean, some of my <laughs> best memories of watching things as a kid were when I was absolutely terrified. For example, The Secret of Nim the animated film, yeah. uh, to this no, day... Nicodemus. Yeah, Nicodemus uh, getting crushed. It, I mean, to this day, it's I can watch it and still get chills. I mean, there was like oh, really yeah. dark stuff in that. And I appreciate that now, looking back. I mean, that was... Well, that was blue through and through, though. I mean, even All Dogs Go to Heaven had some, some terror in it. Of course, it. yeah. In the beginning of Land Before Time, you know, crushed a lot of us with Littlefoot's mom mm-hmm. dying. Um, and we've really moved away from that of giving children the opportunity to have these sort of darker emotions played to. Um, and, you know, I guess you could argue that you don't take your kids to the movies to be scared. I, I don't know. But um, yeah. me personally, I was I was kind of hoping that we'd get a little of that in a film like this with Eli Roth as the director. But it sounds like they went more in the goosebumps direction. It's funny. They play a little bit to what you're speaking on in Jim Carrey's new series, Kidding, on Showtime, but that's for another day. One of the breakout stars, though, in House of Clock and Its Walls is Sonny Siljic. He is actually going to be in Jonah Hill's mid-90s. He's the star, Stevie. He's the kid? Yeah, and he was also the voice and mocap for Atreus in the God of War game, and he was fantastic in that. He's popping up all over the place. He's doing very, very well for himself. Hope he doesn't get hooked on drugs. Yeah. So the last thing I'm going to say about it is at the very beginning, there's a little clip with Eli Roth, Jack Black, Kate Blanchett, essentially all the stars of the film, thanking the audience for coming out and seeing the movie as it was intended to be seen in the theater. And That's I thought that was, yeah, I thought that was very interesting. And I was like, okay, I see you. I, I don't know if it's a speak to the growing trend of, oh, well, it's not going to do well in the theaters, let's just send it to Netflix or Hulu or whatever. I mean, this very well could have either been broken up into a series or released directly to streaming, but I thought it was kind of cool that they thanked the audience for spending their money and coming out and seeing it and supporting them. You know, I I saw something else uh, within the last year that had a similar, the the Ant-Man sequel. I think there there was a prologue where it was... Marvel stars thinking, no, it wasn't Ant-Man. What was it? Was it Infinity War? No, you know what it was? Okay, so it was the Incredibles sequel. Yes. It was actually yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a lead into the Incredibles sequel where you had it was the, worth the voice the actors. Yeah. Yeah. And thanking thanking people for coming to see it. So it's interesting. Yeah. So my general consensus 
you may not need to pay to go see it in the theater, but I would definitely recommend at least picking it up when it's streaming. Especially if you have kids. Yeah, especially if you have kids. All right, White Boy Rick, directed by a guy named Jan Demange, D-E-M-A-N-G-E. His only other movie is a, an IRA, the Irish Republic Army thriller, called 71, which was praised, has high, high marks. Currently, Rotten Tomatoes sits at 59%, IMDb 6.7 out of 10, and Google 86%. Okay, so another middle of the road <laughs> for Google. Uh, Matthew McConaughey shines in this. He is by far the reason to see this movie. He has turned himself from this kind of rom-com, throwaway kind of guy to this powerhouse actor. Well, we yeah, we had the, a couple of years ago, we had the beginnings of the McConaissance, as people called it. Um, we got to see him developing into more of a, yeah, like you said, less of a rom-com leading man, pretty face, to more of a gritty, getting down in the dirt, really getting emotional, and creating these incredible performances. And I think, wasn't it Dallas Buyers Club, the one that he won the, the Oscar Yeah, him for, and uh, Jared Leto. transformed himself. Yeah, absolutely. Lost a bunch of weight, and he was unrecognizable. But this McConaissance, as it's been dubbed, has been some of the best films to come out of Hollywood in recent memory. Well, I yeah, I, there definitely were at the beginning. I think there's been a couple of flops, the Free State of Jones, and I can't remember what else he was in before that. And it doesn't look like White Boy Rick really made too big of a splash either. Yeah, so the movie's not even about McConaughey, so that kind of tells you something. He's not He's not the white right. boy named Rick, right? Richie Merritt, he is White Boy Rick, and this is his first thing ever. He is a Baltimore high school student and was inexplicably cast as the lead. Although he looks kind of like the guy. Why did did did, they, did this kid not do a good job? He, man, I don't know. I don't know if it was the characterization that he put on it or if that's the way that the guy was. I'm not, he wasn't bad. I'm not going to say that he was bad, especially for his first outing. He did very, very well. But this is a kid, when they told him you're being in a movie with Matthew McConaughey, his response was, who's Matthew McConaughey? Wow. Yeah. So, I don't know. I don't know what turned him into wanting to act, but I think he definitely needs to take a few more beats and to really hone his craft before he gets into another drama. And now you mentioned something that uh, you said he looked like the guy, and I think we forgot to say up front that this is based on a true story, right? Oh, yeah. This is based on an actual person named it is yeah it is uh worshi rick worshi he's from detroit and one of the things i learned is that detroit has looked like a shithole for a long time oh yeah yeah (laughs) so they they and they are unabashed about it they show the the griminess the grittiness and rick is even like why don't we leave detroit and matthew mcconaughey his father is like the line doesn't leave the serengeti which means it's okay being in a big fish in a small pond in my world. Right. And are they criminals? Is his father a criminal? His So his dad has been quoted as saying that he was a hustler. He, okay. he sells firearms illegally. and But he's doing it 
so that he can get a nest egg to start a video store so they can get the the family into the lives that they should be leading okay he has a sister right wipo rake has a sister she's a crack addict the parents live across the street it's just a broken home across the board but the movie gets very lost it's very muddied about what's going on because at least from what i recollect they start the movie off rick sells these ak's to these drug dealers and they've never met before but then the next scene rick is like best friends with the younger brother of these guys and then he becomes this trusted a uh, soldier. And this is, and I'm assuming because it's called White Boy Rick, he's a white guy and he's getting ingratiated with, with, a, a, with, with a, a black, black gang. gang. Yeah, with, um, okay. and they wear these big fur coats and stuff. Um, so stereotypical mid to early 80s gangsters. Gangster guys. Yeah. And Rick overhears the FBI talking to his dad about trying to be an informant and they've rope rick in for some reason he's 15 years old doing control advice for them of drugs and so he's like a he's a ci yeah essentially okay but then that like balloons into him breaking down and selling drugs himself and i don't know like i just kind of got lost at what exactly happened there is a documentary called white boy that i guess i should watch to kind of get the full story but I feel like they tried to dramatize a bit too much, and it got lost. Well, yeah, and it, you shouldn't have to watch a documentary to understand the plot of a film. I mean, that's that's the fault of the filmmakers. If it gets muddied and you don't really understand you know, point A to point B to point C, especially if it's based on true life, which true life, it's hard to translate that into film you know, at the best of times, but still, they it's their job to make the story coherent. And it may have just been that I missed a, a point somewhere or misheard something i i don't know but yeah it's not great i think it's hard to do these kind of stories too there was a film that came out last year with tom cruise called american made with yeah. sort of similar dna where he is a he's a guy who's doing illegal stuff but then ends up working for the government and but then doing even more illegal stuff on while he's protected by the government etc cetera, etc cetera. and it's hard to follow that story for an arc because you know the the inevitable end like it's not going to work out for our guy right no matter how much you like him i think blow falls into that same trap with johnny depp um yeah. you're basing a story on a person in a, a set of circumstances in their life that are interesting and you know you can see that in the trailer oh here's white boy rick he was he was dealing drugs or selling guns but now he's like in the gang but now the government's going to use him and this and it's you can see why they would want to tell this story because of the different levels of complexity but a lot of times it's hard to fit that into a movie format that has any sort of satisfying development by the end of it other than you know like Tom Cruise ends up dead Johnny Depp ends up dead I I I guess White Boy Rick probably doesn't end up dead right but I'm sure there's there's some tragic end. He ends up incarcerated, and he was in jail for like 30 years, but he just got paroled last year. That was the end that they announced okay. that. But anyway, don't pay to go see it. If HBO gets it or something, to have a watch. I actually really liked American Made. I saw that in the theater. Yeah, it was, it was fairly entertaining. All right, so that gets us to the bread and butter at least in my opinion, of this episode, which is 
Netflix's new series, Maniac. It's directed by Carrie Fukunaga, who did True Detective, Sin Nombre, Jane Eyre, and his latest project was announced a few days ago, Bond 25, which is replacing Danny Boyle. He had a big splash at, I think it was Sundance at one, Best Director, Spanish language film about immigrants going from the south of Mexico to try to cross the border. The famous sort of image of it is, is all the immigrants on top of this train. I think that's really when he made his big splash, and then, yeah, he followed that up with Jane Eyre. And that was with? Sin Nombre. Oh, okay, okay. It was created by Patrick Somerville, who did HBO's The Leftovers. Rotten Tomatoes right now, it's sitting at 85%. IMDb, it's at an 8.3 out of 10. And Google, 94%. Wow. Okay. Google loved it. 94%. (laughs) In my opinion, this is one of the best things that Netflix has ever done, and it's certainly the best thing they've done this year. I would agree that as far as this year goes, it's definitely in the top series. I guess they're calling this a limited series. Uh, Ten episodes, and then it's complete. Which is sad, but I I can appreciate it. I wouldn't mind if they did what they what they did with True Detective is to kind of jump to another story, new so people, to make it like an anthology, an anthology. Yeah, this is a long way from Superbad for Jonah Hill and Emma Stone. They have matured and grown as actors, but they still have some comedic parts in Maniac. Well, that's one of the things that I'll I'll say up front about it is uh, there's a lot of different things going on tonally, but it it really is funny. There's some genuine hilarity involved in this, and some of it comes from the leads, but there's just a lot of uh, quirk and zaniness going on in the And it's understated. It's it's understated, to me at least. I feel like it's not in your face is, isn't this funny? Isn't this weird? Isn't this crazy? Something like Idiocracy, while it is funny because of those things, I feel like it's very in your face, like laugh at this, laugh at this, laugh at this. Right. Whereas Maniac, there's all this stuff going on, and if you missed it, that's just too bad. Well, and it's it's interesting because Carrie Fukunaga, of course, true detective, uh, one of the great things about that first season was how they layered it, and they put a lot of, uh, I guess you could call it Easter eggs or little hints of stuff throughout the story. Some of it paid off, some of it didn't, uh, and and that's going on here in Maniac too. Not necessarily with as much narrative significance, but there's just little details throughout the the world they've set up and uh, in the characters' lives. Tons that are fun to see. A lot of the series takes place in the in the heads or the minds of these two characters and they cross back and forth because of a reason with the computer. I'm not going to get into all that, but well, I think it is worth explaining a little bit um if if you're approaching this series without having a lot of knowledge about it. Ostensibly it's about two people in a dystopian version of the united states that has this visual aesthetic of like a 19 like late 70s early 80s idea of what the future was going to look like you know you've got a lot of color uh you've got ads run wild uh, run amok things that are pulled from other cinematic sources like blade runner or minority report or to me it had a lot that felt like logan's run uh, to it as well but it's it's uh, these two characters in this world, and they both participate in a drug trial, and then the drugs take us into their 
dreams or whatever you want to call it. And, and as you said, then, then I feel like a majority, I'm only up through the first five episodes, but I feel like a majority of the story unfolds in that space after that point. Yeah. And it gives the opportunity for the directors and the writers to just kind of go nuts with it, to put these characters into really strange situations. Like there's an entire episode where Jonah Hill and Emma Stone are married and it's like the 80s and Jonah Hill has this ridiculous curly mullet. He's wearing a worn moon jersey. Yeah, it's it's so crazy and off of the rest of the series, but it fits so well and you really follow that story and it makes complete sense in the context of everything else. Well, yeah, it's a, it's a self-contained narrative and it seems like these these um, dream sequences or whatever you want to call them are sort of their their own self-contained narratives that are running adjacent to whatever the bigger story is supposed to be. And that one, yeah, is the first one we get. It's very much like an Elmer Leonard, you know, like Get very Shorty so. or Jackie Brown, that kind of crime and humor uh, in unexpected areas of the world in this case long island new york there's a lemur involved without going too too deep into it god i knew when i got to that episode that i was about to experience like the rest of the series i was about to experience something that i don't think i've ever seen in a series before really yeah i just maybe i i'm not out there enough i don't know i just feel like this this delivers something that I haven't caught, at least not well done, in something before. One thing you can absolutely say about the series and about Kerry Fukunaga, and we saw this with True Detective, is, is he has a singular vision, and when he's allowed to execute that, uh, he does it very skillfully, and he does it in a way that immerses you in the world. Some of the choices they made for this world uh, don't really make sense to me. They, they set up this dystopia in the first two episodes. We basically get an episode each for Jonah Hill and Emma Stone to, to take us into where we're going with the, the dreams and everything. And a lot of it kind of goes away after that. There's a, they, they put a lot of detail into this idea of like you can pay for things by having people pitch ads to you. I'm not exactly sure how it works, but um, and then there's these little robots that go around and scoop up dog crap and turn it into Windex or something. And and then once we get to the drug trial, the outside world is kind of forgotten about. And I'm, you can see them trying to make some kind of commentary, like, oh, the world is run by ads, and they show this, like, redone Statue of Liberty, calling it the Statue of Extra Liberty. And I guess the idea is just to say, hey, this is a world that's gone crazy, and, you know, these two people are isolated in it. But it spends a lot of time on it uh, for it not to necessarily have anything to do with the story, which is, as far as I can tell, five episodes in, about the relationship of these two characters. And much more so, Emma Stone's character, Anna, or Anna, I think is her name, uh, they give her a very rich backstory and a very sort of deep trauma that she's dealing with, whereas Jonah Hill does not get nearly as much screen time at the front end, which I imagine they'll they'll tie up the loose ends by the end of it, but they really go into Emma Stone's story in a way that uh, is compelling at times, where Jonah Hill's isn't so much. And for me, and the, and the last thing I'll say about that is that I think why that lemur sequence is so interesting is because Jonah Hill's actually doing something in it, uh, whereas in the first two episodes, he's essentially sleepwalking through the 
it's just this, these weird choices he's making to be sort of vacant and, you know, mouth agape staring. We saw this, you and I did, when we watched Extinction with Michael Pena, another great actor making these same choices. But then when we get to the dream sequences, Jonah Hill's actually acting, he's actually doing stuff, and it's a little more engaging. Whereas, on the other hand, Emma Stone is just, you know, from the get-go, she's, she's a force, and uh, she really does a great job of conveying, I guess, what's supposed to be this deep trauma and her lack of connection to the world. Yeah, and I, I noticed that in those, those centric episodes, if you will, and I think that it does pay off in the end for Jonah Hill. To me, he's just, he's playing the role of somebody that doesn't know what's real and what's not very well. He's just staying to himself, trying to make sure that he doesn't have any outbursts, trying to make sure that he doesn't interact with people that may not actually be there. So it might just be his way of keeping to himself and not rocking the boat, because if he does, then people will know that he's off as Well, yeah, I'm not talking about the, the character. Yeah, it makes sense that the character would want to do that. We see him, he essentially has some form of schizophrenia. He sees... Uh, like a clone of his brother who's played wonderfully by this guy uh, Billy Magnuson who he was in, he was in Game, Game Night, Night. He was amazing he, he was a real st- <laughs> yeah he was a real standout in that and I think he is in this too every time he's on the screen you know I'm just really loving it he's got a great energy oh, yeah. and he's essentially playing two characters yes. in this film because he in real life he's Jonah Hill's brother and that's where the his drama comes from there's some sort of thing they want jonah hill's character to lie about something his brother did and we don't find out i'm guessing until much Much, later in the series uh what that is and but he's also a figment of jonah's imagination with a mustache and a like a crew cut or a flat top rather it's it's amazing and he just like runs around is like i'm not really here but i am but i'd have to say that uh, one of the reasons Jonah Hill's performance kind of fell flat for me is because there are these just incredible ancillary characters that that are doing such an amazing job. I mean, uh, the the Japanese scientist at the beginning, well, actually both of them, the male and female, that guy was killing me. He was hilarious. There were just some, like, bizarre moments that I, I really, like, laugh-out-loud moments. And then, of course, Justin Thoreau, when we finally get introduced <laughs> to him, it's just... And, and I love this guy. You know, he's he's so versatile, and there's been some of the funniest things I've ever seen have come from his mind or come from yeah. him on screen. Uh, Tropic Thunder being probably the best example of it. So there's these 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 characters, and also Billy Magnuson running around that are just they're, they're doing wonderful things and they're clearly having fun. Sally Fields in there doing some stuff too. Yeah. So it's it, there's a lot of texture to this, and there's a lot of characters that are really bringing interesting things to play so that it is a very watchable show it's very easy to to binge through this i don't think it took me very long to get through you know the first couple of episodes they're like 35 minutes a piece yeah 35 uh, 40 minutes not too long amanda and i binged it in one day wow we over two sittings so i watched the first episode by myself the night before and then was just kind of watching the second one with her in the room not thinking she'd be into it, but I looked over and she was completely glued. And I just kind of let the next one play. And she's like, yeah, no, this is happening. We just ate it up. It was, it was incredible. And she started pointing out things like, oh, there's a gimlet. Oh, there's the Rubik's Cube. Like just these little props that are kind of thrown away to you in the beginning or throughout the, peppered throughout the series. 
and they just appear everywhere. Well, that's how the two char- the first two characters meet, or they don't meet, but that's how we see them cross paths. Emma Stone pulls this Rubik's cube, throws mm-hmm. it behind her on the ground, and you see in the background Jonah Hill walk by, pick it back up. Yeah, it's it's eminently watchable, and I think if you binge it, that's probably best because there are it does fall prey to a lot of the same problems that even though the episodes are a little shorter than some other Netflix series, they they do take their time with a lot of stuff that isn't necessarily, I wouldn't say it's boring, but it, it does start to drag. There's one scene where Emma Stone is being interviewed by Justin Thoreau, and it's just the two of them talking about things we've already seen, and it goes on for about seven minutes of actual screen time. And I, I was, like, looking at my watch at that point. It's, it's that kind of stuff that if you watch it all through, binging it kind of gets glossed over a little bit. It's a little more forgivable, whereas if it had been in a film, like a two-hour two film, you'd probably be like, why is this going on this long? I'd say that it is certainly geared towards a certain audience, but I can't give it enough praise, and I absolutely think that if you're listening to this, you should watch it. And there's the... There's a few things that are, I think it was from a book. I think the, the guy who wrote it, it was from a novel he wrote. Um, but they tie a lot of the story to Don Quixote, which is yeah. a, a little obvious um, if, if, you've, if, you've had, if you've been forced to read it at some point in your life, just kind of outlining this idea of wanting to lose yourself in your own delusion or losing yourself in your own delusion because you're ignoring everybody else's reality that doesn't involve you and the struggles therein. But in this case, these two characters doing that but still ending up together is, is where the sort of the central conflict grows out of. Visually, it's it's great. There's there's a lot of weird things. There's like a, a, a robot koala at one point. Uh, there's, a, there's a cool time lapse early on. There's a lot of actors just smoking sort of uh, anachronistically. Uh, there's, there's even like, if you've ever seen Tim and Eric awesome show or anything that the Tim and Eric guys have done. There's this sort of instructional video with the two scientists that it's just like something Tim and Eric would do. Like it's that sort of, Oh yeah. It smacks of Eric Andre and, and it, Tim and Eric. And it's completely. very funny, but you're right. It's you, you have to go into it uh, understanding that there is going to be a sort of level of, I guess quirk is probably the best word to describe it. And, and there's a lot of tonal shifts it goes from very serious to, to very sort of confusingly goofy. Uh, there's there's a certain element of Terry Gilliam's Brazil to it, the idea of what's real, what's not real, and madness and that kind of thing. But yeah, like you said, yeah. ultimately, it's very interesting. It's, it's definitely worth watching. Uh, it's the best new series that Netflix has put out this year, of course, and maybe going back even longer. Oh, no. Well, back to whenever Godless was. Is what What's interesting is so it's it's based on a Norwegian series called Maniac that, from what I've read, has literally no connection to this. It's just it's about a guy who has schizophrenia and has daydreams. So that's as much of it that it has in common. But it was done by the same company that did Lilyhammer, which was Netflix's first original okay. series. Yeah. Which I loved. I thought Lilyhammer was amazing. I never I never got to see it, but I did hear good things about it. Yeah, it was very well done. Did you um since you have finished the series, uh, does the title ever mean anything beyond, you know, the obvious maniac and they're potentially 
some of these people are crazy. I don't think so. I think that it just it stems from it's supposed to be a series about Jonah Hill being a potential maniac. I, I guess. I mean, that's that's what the the Norwegian series, right? That's where it comes from. Is that this guy is schiz paranoid schizophrenic and they would they dub him a maniac i'm assuming so maybe it's just in in name but yeah i don't i don't know yeah because it, it doesn't really fit the the, the central relationship jonah no. hill and emma stone i mean you could certainly consider the the scientist maniacs um, maybe maybe that's where it comes from I, I i was just wondering if there was like some connection to that but i guess not all right moving into Land of Study Habits, it's directed by Nicole Holofcener. I think that's how you say her name. She was a student of Martin Scorsese. Yeah, she did uh, Friends with Money with Katherine Keener, Jennifer Aniston, Joan Cusack, Frances McDormand. A lot of powerful women in there. And uh, Enough Said with James Gandolfini and Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Rotten Tomatoes it has an 81%. IMDb, it's a 6.2 out of 10. And Google, 78%. Oh my goodness. That yeah. is by far the lowest Google score. Like that's that's failing as far as Google scores go. I have to I have to admit I I have to go with Google on this. I I'm not saying that I didn't like it. I'm just saying that I think I've seen enough said and friends with money, but the fact that I can't remember that I've seen them or not kind of leads to where I land with this movie. I just kind of... So the, the things that are going to draw you to know. this film are definitely not the director's name we can't pronounce, but the, the people in it, um, <laughs> Ben Mendelsohn is yeah. headlining it, Edie Falco's in it as well, uh, the kid who is in Ozark right now, which forgot to mention that Julia Garner, who has done really well for herself recently, particularly standing out in Ozark, is also in Maniac. Oh yeah, Julia Garner. I completely forgot to mention her. She's in that. So we've got a lot of cross-pollination in these Netflix series going on. Absolutely. So it's it's a great cast. This is based on a novel, uh, and I think probably it works better as a novel. It's about, essentially, Ben Mendelsohn is having a midlife crisis, or he had a midlife crisis, and now he's trying to put his life back together. We meet him post-crisis, and it's just about these relationships uh, in this, I guess it's in Connecticut, or it's in some really like rich white part of New England. Yeah, Westport, yeah. Connecticut. And just sort of their problems, a lot of it having to do with uh, money to some degree, but more of trying to find meaning in life outside of your job and not doing well with your kids, and then your kids causing problems. Oh, and uh, one of the kids is played by Thomas Mann, uh, and he does a really good job. He gets a lot of screen time. I think one of the, the biggest problems, though, and why it probably works better as a novel, is we have all these characters that are set up really well, and they're, they're, they're acted really well, but it's uneven the amount of time we spend with them, and it's, it starts to maybe halfway through the movie, you start to wonder, who, who is this movie about? Like, what is, you know, where are we going? Yeah, because it doesn't spend enough time on each one for it to just be about even the area that they're in. This could very easily be a slice of life about Westport if it had spent an even amount with these different families, but it doesn't. It kind of lingers with Ben Mendelsohn's character and then kind of goes over to Edie Falco and, and their kid, but then also with the kid and then like the mom of uh, one of the other guys and then kind of meanders to Connie Britton. And yeah, she's, she's kind of thrown in there at the end. 
doesn't really have any connection to anything else other than just Ben Mendelsohn's character starts dating her, and she's also a divorcee. So yeah, it's it's uh, it's definitely uneven. Also, it's it's generally funny in moments. Uh, I thought it was meant to be a comedy when I first started watching it. It opens in Bed Bath and Beyond, and there's sort of this visual, a lot of visual gags going on, and we we see the first things we see is Ben Mendelsohn's character going home with different women and then not being able to get it up because of, you know, whatever his, his mental issues, but then it gets really dark. And the, the central drama of the story is, is a, is a very unfunny drug story. So it, it was confusing. Um, I didn't hate it, but like you said, it, if you've seen one movie like this. <laughs> yeah. But the reason we wanted to discuss it is to segue into a guy that you and I both have a, a deep love for, and that would be Ben Mendelsohn. He is having a really great career right now for a guy that came out of Australia and did a lot of... If you think of Australian movies, this guy's probably been in it. I mean, he was in Quigley Down Under. He was in Baz Luhrmann's Australia. He was in Animal Kingdom, which was probably like the breakout uh, for a lot of those yeah, guys. which was exactly... 2010 was his breakout role, and that actually got turned into a TNT right. series. Unnecessarily, I would um, argue, but um, <laughs> Animal Kingdom was a fantastic Alan movie. Um, and we also can thank that film for Joel Edgerton, or Edgerton, as well. But yeah, the, Bed Mendelsohn was the whole reason I clicked on this. Uh, I'd seen nothing about Land of City Habits prior to watching it on Netflix, but it was just like, you know, when you open Netflix and it throws something at you, at the top of the screen, and I saw Ben Mendelsohn, I said, well, you know, yep. this is his, he's, he's having a moment right now. It's so weird, because I, I forgot the name of the movie, uh, so I just looked for Ben Mendelsohn on Netflix, and then it came up, and I was like, oh, right, but there are just, like, pages of movies, and I'm looking through them, like, he's not in all of these, I know that, so I don't know what no. Netflix was doing when I typed They're in just his looking name. for Ben, but, with B-E-N uh, in it. But 2012 seem to really be his his coming to America moment. Just let your soul go. Just let it shine through. He was in Place Beyond the Pines, which was uh, incredible. If you ride like lightning, you're gonna crash like thunder. I've still never finished it. Uh, I, it's multi generational, and I think I got through like the first generation, and then that movie did drag a little bit. But I, I thought it was very, very well done, very deliberately done. Um, but yeah, he was also in Killing Them Softly with Brad Pitt. Guess this, a sawn off shotgun. It's what you asked me to get you. And then Dark Knight Rises, all in one year. Believers. No, you stay here. I'm in charge. Do you feel in charge? Dark Knight Rises is very, very small part, but very memorable because of his confrontation with Bane. You know, he like lays the hand on his shoulder. Like, do you feel powerful? You <laughs> oh, know. God, that was great. And, uh, <laughs> that was a really good. Oh, you didn't know? I, I'm secretly. <laughs> that was a really great impersonation. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. I haven't been practicing at all. <laughs> but yeah, Killing Them Softly, uh, Brad Pitt. Uh, I I remember seeing Killing Softly, another movie that takes place in Detroit, and I I liked it, but it did not. I like it a lot. Um, I, that actor, excuse me, the director is a as a fellow Aussie of his, uh, Andrew Dominic, and he did this just amazing movie with Brad Pitt prior called uh, The Assassination of Jesse James oh. by Robert Ford, and or the, the Coward Robert yeah. Ford, I guess is the full title. 
and it's it's slow. It's very lyrical. It's very much like Terrence Malick when he was oh. you know doing movies that you could sit through, um, <laughs> and. and uh, and I, I loved that movie, and I remember going into Killing Him Softly with high hopes, and and I and I did enjoy it because because of the style and and the acting in it. But it it was not a lot of people's cup of tea. I remember particularly people going in expecting like a crime thriller movie, and it's really not. It's more of like a dissection of of a crumbling you know urban environment. It's very in case, brutal too. I remember, but very violent. Yeah, yeah very violent. And Ben Mendelsohn is like a drug. He's like a drug addict or something. Right? I don't know. It's been he's, a long. He's time. like a hapless. <laughs> he plays, and he's played this character a few times. Sort of this like hapless degenerate who's in way over his head, which he perfected, I think, in Bloodlines, the Netflix series with Kyle Chandler. Which I need to see. Kyle Chandler's amazing. Hard to talk about Bloodline without giving away plot points, but Ben Mendelsohn was sort of the key character in that, and he is playing a guy who's. You know, he's 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 basically your your bridge troll kind of family member you don't want to have around because he's always, you know, either getting drunk or causing problems and getting involved in shady dealings. So he's got a lot of range because then we've seen him in recent years as as a villain type character. Yeah, he was in Rogue One. It is Lyra back from the dead. It's a miracle. Krennic is is probably one of the better star wars universe villains i i think he does a very good job of being spineless but well he has motivation that isn't just oh we're the evil empire like he has very clear goals which is nice for a change yeah um he was in darkest hour as was the king well i don't know that he's uptight he's um you know he's the king he was the villain in Ready Player One, even though that wasn't a great film, he did well in it. I rock, old friend. How are you? To be honest, I have kind of a neck thing. It's like a carpal tunnel deal, but with your neck, if that's even a thing. And he's going to be, I think he's one of the main villains in Captain Marvel coming out. Yeah, Captain Marvel, Robin Hood, he's, gonna, he's Sheriff Nottingham, and he's going to be King Henry in the film adaptation of Shakespeare's King The Henry, King, yeah. I think is just what it's called. But it's, like you said, he started in Australia. And I remember being a kid, uh, I think Quigley Down Under came out early 90s. We had it on VHS. I got him! I got Quigley! And he's, he's just like this goofy second banana to Alan Rickman's villain character. And he's got like a head of curly hair and like messed up teeth to the point where I went, like, I had his face in my mind, and I couldn't pinpoint it, and I'm watching, like, maybe I'm watching Bloodline, or I'm watching, um, probably Killing Them Softly, and I'm thinking, man, that guy is so familiar, and it wasn't until I went back later, I was like, oh, man, yeah, he was in that movie I watched as a kid. He's been <laughs> acting for 30-something years, like, three decades now. Yeah, he he's done very well for himself to kind of pull himself out of what Americans would view as obscurity in, you know, Australian cinema, and has carved out a nice little niche for him here, and it seems like... Well, I mean, you know, once you're in Marvel, that's kind of <laughs> that's kind of the top of the, the ladder these at days. Least now, yeah, definitely. Which uh, I read today that it was announced when the Fox deal goes through that the X-Men are going to be rolled into the MCU. Right, Kevin Feige's taking over. Yeah, which is that show. so exciting to me. Yeah, I, I just think that it's a great move 
to take this limitless potential of the X-Men and to put them into the hands of somebody that is like a modern day cinematic god. Yeah, it'll, it'll be really interesting to see what how they decide to integrate um, X-Men into the MCU since they had to intentionally avoid it for for rights reasons up until now. Yeah, they couldn't even say the word mutant. They right. Just... So Ben Mendelsohn, uh, I, I probably wouldn't recommend watching Land of Steady Habits, but there is a great film that is on Netflix right now that was a A24 release, uh, and it's called Mississippi Grind, and it's with him and Ryan Reynolds. And it's just a, just a cool movie. Like these, It's about gamblers, and you know, they're... The, the plot is pretty thin. It's basically a road movie of guys going different places and gambling to try to get to this one big game down in, in New Orleans. Ben Mendelsohn is playing uh, sort of this uh, everyman who's addled by a gambling addiction and it's kind of ruined his life. You put me down for five tonight in Hawaii over Gonzaga. I have it. I have the money. I literally have the money right here in my hand. I'm looking at it. Oh. Hey, JP? JP. Uh, and he meets Ryan Reynolds, who's just playing Ryan Reynolds, basically. Just super cool dude. And watching them play off of each other is pretty fantastic. And the movie is very entertaining, uh, not only because of their performances, but because of how it takes you through this kind of heart of America that we don't really get to see that often. I think I'm going to go and watch Mississippi Grind now. I, I tend to really like uh, a good sort of gambler movie, you know, poker movie, uh, if it's well executed. And this one is certainly built around that central conceit, but it's the performances that really pull you in. Uh, ben Mendelsohn and uh, Ryan Reynolds together on screen. It's, it's, a, it's a treat. Would you say that you get pulled all in? <laughs> oh, I set man. you up and you slam dunked it. Hopefully there's no terrible Russian accents like in Rounders. So, that's it then. Hmm? Just like a young man coming in for a quickie. I feel so unsatisfied. No, no. <laughs> as much as I like John Malkovich, holy hell. I know, hell. and the, his, his tell is the twisting the ories and stuff. It's kind of dumb, but... Yeah. No, it's, it's, a very, it's, it's a very grounded film. It's a very real world. I mean, it's, they do get like a big payout at one point but it's it's more just about perpetually losing you know that kind of film more along the lines of the, the gambler, gambler yeah. yeah so um which gambling is is the genesis of killing them softly so bringing it all back around come full circle one more ben mendelson movie that is also on netflix is slow west uh i know he's in that mm. no but that has that has cody uh mcfee, McAfee yeah. or whatever his name is yeah he was yeah, in Alpha. So he's, I think he's the lead in that. And there's some other interesting characters in that, which haven't watched it. But if you're going down the Ben Mendelsohn hole, Netflix is a great place to be because, you know, Bloodline, you've got Mississippi Grind. If you really wanted to, you could watch this Land of Steady Habits. I wouldn't recommend it personally. but It's always fun to see when Australians do movies about the American West. I just, I think there's a lot in common that uh, the Outback has. There is, and there, there's there been some fantastic Australian Westerns and just in the last decade or so, maybe two decades. All right, so today we talked about a house with a clock in its walls, White Boy Rick, Maniac, 
Land of Steady Habits, and then we kind of did a retrospective of Ben Mendelsohn. House of the Clock and as well as I do recommend, especially if you have kids. White Boy Rick, not so much. Maybe catch it when it's on HBO or Netflix. Maniac, absolutely watch it. Watch it again. Love it. Live it. It's great. And Land of Steady Habits, not Mendelssohn's best movie. Look for Mississippi Grind or Bloodline on Netflix as well. We're going to have Idris Elba sitting in with us next week. He's going to talk about where he feels like the Bond series needs to go. So thanks for listening. Bye-bye.